Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Keith Olive, who is a theoretical physicist and director of the William Foyne Theoretical Physics Institute at the University of Minnesota, specializing in particle physics and cosmology. His main topics of research are Big Bang nucleosynthesis, particle dark matter, Big Bang baryogenesis, and inflation. Welcome, Keith. Hi. Uh, I want to start with, you know, sort of laying out the chronology um, of the universe. Um, we know that something happened 13.8 billion years ago. We don't know exactly what that is. But um, since then, um, we have a reasonably good understanding of how the universe evolved, right? Um, and so there are certain, certain timing and regions of this timeline that has special characteristics, special uh, interesting um, things that happened during that time. So do you want to sort of lay out the chronology a bit? Sure, I can do that. Um, as you said, the, the very beginning is, is not very clear. That's not very well understood. Uh, we call it the Big Bang. Uh, what exactly is the Big Bang, uh, we don't know. And the main problem is that, uh, well, the universe as a whole is, is run by gravity. And yeah. as we go back uh, in time to the very first moment, um, gravity should be very strong. And for that, you would really need to have a quantum theory of gravity, which, mm. which we don't have. The closest thing there is is, uh, is a theory called string theory, which should be a unification of all the fundamental forces, which include gravity. But that theory is not complete. And uh, so we still have a question mark as to exactly what happened in the first instant. Uh, however, so, so Keith, so in the first instant, um, the, the four forces, four fundamental forces, uh, we believe should be all unified, right? So gravity, strong and weak forces and electromagnetism. Right. As I said, that's not fully understood. Uh, okay. we, there is a theory that unifies three of them. Uh, it's called a grand unified theory that uh, all three, except for gravity, yeah. um, in principle, string theory should uh, be a comprehensive theory that, that encompasses all four interactions uh, mm. and perhaps others. Uh, but it's also possible that there was no exact beginning in that sense. Uh, so in, in most cosmological paradigms now there's a theory called inflation yeah and that was also extremely early on a period where the universe uh, started to expand extremely rapidly uh, mm -hmm. it could also be that that is in some sense the state of the universe on extremely large scales that it is always in that state where it's expanding very rapidly we say it's expanding exponentially and that occasionally out pops from that 
a region of space and time which is a little bit more like uh, the one that we live in. That's yeah. a theory called eternal inflation. And most inflationary theories, in fact, are some, in some sense eternally inflating. And that would avoid this idea that you ever had an initial singularity uh, mm. or the Big Bang is you know, sort of the classic notion of that. So in that in that context, um, we could have sort of an inflationary epochs like that in our current universe that could sort of start another universe from within. Yeah, although you have to be a little bit careful because um, the distance scales that we're talking about on which this is happening are so immense, uh, yeah. much much farther than you know. We, we talk about an edge of our universe. That's by that we mean you mentioned 13.8 billion years, which is the current estimate of the 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 age of the universe. And yeah. so you can imagine going out to a distance at which light traveled that uh, over that period of time. That would be sort of like our visible edge of the universe. We call it the horizon, just like yeah. looking out over the ocean. You can only see so far because afterwards the Earth turns away and you, you can't see past that. Hmm. Uh, so there's a horizon in the universe. We can only see out so far. Doesn't mean the universe ends there. The universe might go on forever. Hmm. Uh, and uh, out distance is much, much larger than that horizon in the universe might be still in this inflationary state. Hmm. And it could pop out some other I put in in quotes uh, universe, uh, but in some sense that's irrelevant because that will be moving away from us. And your listeners might be a little bit upset with what I'm going to say, but it's going to be moving <laughs> away from us faster than the speed of light. It right, doesn't right. violate anything because that's all within the context of general relativity. There will never be a signal. We can never get a signal from that other universe. Yeah, um, but it might still be there. That puts us, that gets us out of the realm of physics a bit because that's more, I, I would call it metaphysics because it's completely untestable. Untestable. Be, so it, it's going to be all speculation. It, it could that, be speculation. Yeah, it, yeah. it could be true. We just will never, we will never know because we can't get a signal from that. It's, right. it's beyond our horizon and it will always be beyond our horizon. So, um, uh, as I say, it's a little bit metaphysical. It's it's sort of fun yeah. to think about. But the part that is a little bit more real is the inflationary patch, I, I could call it, that we grew yeah. out of. And because and that's, that's a very short... So I just want to give a scale of that. So the, the inflation that we're talking about in, in, the, in the universe that we know, uh, we're talking about 10 to, the, 10 to the power minus 35 seconds, right? So we're talking about a very... Uh, very small period of time. That's right. Right after the origin. Yeah. Right? So again, you have to be a little bit careful about that bit about the origin. It it is the time scale that we're associating with the after inflation. So again, the notion of time before that is a, can be a little bit sketchy or a little bit more complex. But mm. once we get out of this period of inflation, then we we put a, a time stamp. And 10 to the minus 35 is, is seconds is sort of yeah. the, the standard, you know, generic number for that. Um, and so, yes, in that sense, it's a very short period of time, but leads to very distinct uh, ob observational effects and some of which have been tested already. Right, right. And so so right after that uh, is what they call the age of leptons. Um, so leptons are things like electrons, right? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I would really call it the age of leptons per se. It's more the, usually it would be called, right after inflation, it would be called the radiation uh, <laughs> epoch. Uh, so uh, the universe was extremely hot. And yeah. so it was populated by all sorts of particles. Leptons are a class of particles. Uh, which, as you said, includes um, electrons. It includes neutrinos and uh, and their copies, which we call uh, other generations. So there's the electron and its neutrino is one generation, uh, yeah. and then there are two more. Uh, the charged one is called mu, and 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 the third one would be called tau. Um, but there are also all the quarks that are present in the universe, and and all of the other particles. You, 
photons and other carriers of forces and the Higgs part of everything was present. It was all there at that point. Yeah. Um, okay, okay. And there are some ideas around uh, that time frame. So uh, tell me if I get this right. So, you know, 10 raised to minus 35 to 10 raised to minus six seconds or so. Okay. That is the time frame we are looking at. Right. That's okay. And so, so th this idea of uh, leptogenesis, um, you know, essentially, how did it kind of evolve? And uh, there are some sort of mysteries that that you'll talk about at a later time in terms of, um, you know, it's uh, uh, we we get matter but not antimatter, and other aspects of the universe that that we witness appears sort of strange. Uh, but in this early time frame, uh, there are some ideas that that might fit with what we observe, right? Um, sure. Uh, let, let me maybe put it into context because okay. leptogenesis is a particular model or theory of baryogenesis. Uh, okay. they're, they're very much intertwined. Um, all this started in the late 70s. So what and let me say what happened sort of in the mid 70s uh, as more and more became understood about the unification of the forces. So we're talking about electromagnetism, the weak nuclear force, and also the strong uh, nuclear force. Uh, in the late 60s, the, the electromagnetism and the weak force were understood in some unified sense, not truly unified. Yeah. And then in the mid 70s, uh, there were some ideas put forth about what I said was called grand unification, which unifies uh, all three um, uh, forces, uh, electromagnetic, uh, the weak and the strong force. Uh, and that's called, and as I said, that's called grand unification. Now, yeah. uh, in grand unification, there are additional, if you want, forces. There are additional particles that mediate forces. And mm -hmm. they don't respect some symmetries that, that we seem to, to observe today. And that one symmetry uh, is called uh, uh, baryon number conservation. So what's, a, what's baryon number? First of all, the baryon, that's the baryosynthesis, uh, is where that number is, is the generation of a baryon number. Uh, and baryons is a class of particles. You mentioned leptons before. Uh, baryons is another one. Uh, protons and neutrons, for example, are, are baryons. Uh, yeah. They're particles uh, made of, uh, of three quarks. Uh, and so quark is another fundamental particle like the electron. Uh, the proton is yeah. not a fundamental particle. Uh, and so you have three three quarks that make up a proton and a neutron. Yes, uh, not exact the same quarks. So in a proton, yeah. there would be uh, there, there are six quarks altogether that we uh, know in nature. Uh, they're called up and down, charm and strange, and top and bottom. And, <laughs> right. and uh, so it's again the three families, just like the leptons, the electron, mu, and tau, each with their neutrinos. Uh, so they, they yeah. come three of them and they're pairs of three. So there are six each. Uh, on top of that, the quarks have another property, which we call color. So there are of each of these, like the up quark, there are three different um, varieties of that. But a proton would be two ups and a down and a neutron would be one up and two downs. So different yeah. combinations of these quarks will lead to different particles, which have all been produced since uh, since the 1950s in uh, in accelerators so so uh if baryon number is conserved it would mean that the lightest baryon uh would have to be stable because it couldn't decay into anything most particles are not stable um yeah. the, even the neutron is uh, by itself is not stable it has a lifetime of about 10 minutes um and it'll decay into a proton uh along with an electron and a neutrino it's a, a weak decay uh, but the, the proton then would become stable because it has nothing it can decay to. And right. that's a consequence of baryon number conservation. Hmm. If baryon number is conserved, then in, in effect, unless the, the universe started out with a net baryon number, uh, there would be no way to produce it. 
So, so Keith, more simplistically then, uh, if I understand this correctly, the number of protons and the number of neutrons that, that aggregate sum should stay the same. Um, that's right. That's right. Okay. So the, the total baryon number, if you have a collection of neutrons and protons, the total baryon number of that system would be the sum of the number of neutrons and the number of protons. And you can convert yeah. between them, um, but that, that sum has to stay the same. And that's baryon number conservation. Right. Now, these grand unified theories don't respect baryon number. And so they can change the baryon number. In fact, proton can decay. Mm -hmm. And that led to a whole slew of experiments that started in the late 70s looking for proton decay. Now, that lifetime is very, very long, much, much longer than the right. age of the universe. Um, the limits on the lifetime now are, are on the order of um, 10 to the 33 years. The universe <laughs> okay. itself is only 10 to, the, 10 to the 10 years, right? So this is yeah. much, much longer. Of course, you would never find it by looking at one proton. You have to gather tons and tons of protons and look for uh, one of them out of, out of everything that you're observing to decay. So baryogenesis is a, was originally a theory that came out of grand unification where you try and produce the baryon asymmetry of the universe. And more simply put, the matter-antimatter uh, asymmetry of the universe. So all particles have their antiparticles. The, the electron yeah. has a positron, which instead of being negatively charged, is positively charged. And the proton has an antiparticle, which is called an antiproton. Uh, and there's an antineutron. These have all been discovered. This is not speculation. This is all <laughs> well, well determined. Uh, they all exist, uh, yeah. Uh, for, for, for a long time now. Um, I don't have the dates in my head, but it, nearly 100 years, not quite, but for, for the discovery of antimatter. But the puzzle, I guess the puzzle is uh, we would have expected sort of an equal number of protons and, and antiprotons in that, in that That's soup, right. in that That's early right. soup, right? Um, in which case, if they were exactly equal, they would have uh, they, they would have negated they would have each negated other. each other and uh, and by that they would have annihilated with each other in the universe yeah. uh, to such an extent that there would be very very little matter left in the universe today. There's no possibility of making a star or a galaxy or anything else. There just it would be orders of magnitude off. So so something had to happen and. Um, what that something is was actually laid out by uh, the, phys the Russian physicist uh, Andrei Sakharov in 1967. He said, you need three conditions. And, um, yeah. and between a, a universe that's expanding and grand unified theories, all three of those ingredients were present. And so there are some very simple and elegant ways uh, of generating a baryon asymmetry, of generating a net baryon number in the universe, which would lead to only matter or only antimatter. And of course, whatever's left over is the one we call matter. Uh, a priori, it, right. doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, is there, uh, Keith, just a, a quick question. Is there any possibility that there is a, you know, there is a, a side of the universe that we can really probe that is made of antimatter. <laughs> the reason we are not seeing it is because well, that's, we that, it's it. a good question. I mean, you can start by asking. You know, we know the Earth is not made of antimatter. I mean, that's because we've defined it that way. You also, you know, there's not like an antimatter mine, right? You can't go somewhere and start digging and find some some cave filled right. of antimatter, right? Because it would have just eaten up the Earth. Uh, you know, the Moon is not antimatter. You know, Neil Neil Armstrong showed us that. Um, you know, the sun is not antimatter because lots of particles come off the sun uh, in the solar wind. This whole solar system is not antimatter. You, in fact, you really know the whole galaxy yeah. is not antimatter because we get all sorts of particles from the galaxy in the form of cosmic rays. So you can then say, what about the next galaxy? Could that just be an antimatter galaxy? Uh, and mm -hmm. again, the answer is almost certainly. I mean, eventually you go far enough, we become a little bit less certain. But we're pretty certain there's really yeah. no antimatter in the universe. Uh, it's, uh, mm. there, it's never been seen in the cosmic rays where you actually find, um, as a primary particle, 
you know, something like uh, anti-helium, right, which would be very hard to produce. Mm. It's extremely hard to produce. Uh, and so uh, it is possible in a collision to make anti, anti well, certainly anti-protons are made in collisions all the time, but even things like anti yeah. Deuterium, which is the smallest nuclei with just a neutron and a, a proton bound together, or anti-helium, hmm. uh, you can make them, um, but they're not found as you know really uh, as primary particles. Okay, okay. So we're we're pretty confident uh, the current universe does not have any antimatter particles. And so the, the puzzle is, if you started with, you know, sort of equal numbers, you cannot... Unless you, yeah. unless you violate Which would, baryon number yeah. conservation. Uh, unless you violate something. Okay, so that is the, uh, the Sakharov that's conditions, right? That's right. right. It, well, that's, you have to violate baryon number is one of the conditions. You have to do it in a okay. way which uh, sort of prefers one over the other. Uh, it's more technically, mm -hmm. it's called C and CP violation. Uh, which is charge symmetry and charge and parity symmetries. Um, and uh, the other is that you have to do it out of equilibrium, uh, because if you do it in equilibrium, both forward and backward reactions will, will be equal, and any baryon number you make will just be erased by the backward reaction. So the fact that the universe expands gives you a, a chance of doing something out of equilibrium. And, and the simplest uh, mechanism that was really first proposed, uh, I think it was 1978 or 79. Um, it's time when I was just starting out uh, my research career. Uh, it was one of the things that fascinated me is that one, some of the particles associated with grand unification, uh, when they decay, they decay into slightly unequal amounts of, of, of baryons and antibaryons. And mm. if that happens out of equilibrium, that will lead to a net excess of one over the other. And so it's a very natural thing that you, you, you start out the universe with all of these particles. It's very, very hot. And then as the universe cools, these particles start decaying, and they, but they decay in a somewhat biased way. And that bias is, is coming mm. from this C and CP violation, which is also in other systems is something that's observed. It was a... It was discovered in, in the 60s uh, for, for different particle systems. So um, this seemed to be a very natural way of generating a, an asymmetry. Um, let me shift now to leptogenesis because it's, it, in some ways it's very, yeah. very similar. So uh, leptogenesis is associated, as, as you mentioned earlier, with neutrinos. Uh, and the, I said that there were three neutrinos, and they mix with each other, meaning they're not the, the neutrino that's associated with the electron and the one that's associated with the muon. They're not really distinct states. Quantum, quantum mechanically, <laughs> they they can evolve from one to the other. And to do though, yeah. to do that, they have to have a mass. And this is something, okay. and it's now. Uh, well understood that they, they do oscillate, which is what's observed. Um, neutrinos coming from the sun oscillate. Neutrinos coming made in, in, uh, in the atmosphere from cosmic rays are seen to oscillate. So this is, this is something that's uh, fairly well understood now. It's certainly uh, observed in, uh, in that sense. Um, so oscillate meaning they start as one variety and by the time they reach us, it's That's a different right. variety. Uh, you can make an electron. Okay. So the sun might make an electron neutrino because those are the interactions <laughs> that you would, you would have in the sun. But when they get here, they're not all electron neutrinos anymore. Some of them have become muon neutrinos or tau neutrinos. Uh, same, the ones <laughs> made in the, in the atmosphere are largely muon neutrinos. When, when we see them in the detectors, some of those muon neutrinos will have turned into electron neutrinos. Is that totally random? Um, or is uh, no, there's patterns. patterns. I mean, it's, it's under, again, it's understood. I mean, it, it has to do yeah. uh, with the relative differences in masses uh, between them. Uh, uh, but they have to have mass. Uh, the original electroweak theory uh, the simplest thing was to just keep neutrinos as massless particles, but um, 
because there was no evidence for it at the time. Now we know neutrinos have mass. And the question is, how do they get their mass? Do they get their mass in the same way that, say, the electron gets the, its mass, which is through uh, interactions with the Higgs boson, which is why when the Higgs boson was discovered, it was such a big deal. Um, or is it a little bit different? And and the uh, probably the most common theory behind neutrino masses, and it's still a theory, the exact mechanism for neutrino masses is not known and might not be known in our lifetimes, and I'll explain why in a, in a minute. Um, yeah. Electrons get are, are, are get their mass through the interaction uh, with the Higgs in a very simple way. There are, in some sense, two kinds of electrons, uh, a, a left-handed yeah. electron and a right-handed electron. One has weak interactions, right. the other doesn't. The left one does, the right one doesn't. They both have electromagnetic interactions. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the question is, is, is that the same, it could be the same way for neutrinos. You just have a left neutrino and a right-handed neutrino. They both in effect have the same mass. They interact with the Higgs and that's the end of the story. It could also be that the right-handed neutrino is extremely heavy and gets a different kind of mass. Uh, uh, because it's neutral and it actually doesn't have any other interactions, it could have a mass, a right-handed neutrino mass, just in and of itself. And if it's really heavy, then when you work out the mass states, uh, there will be some mixing between the, the right and left neutrino, and you will get still two now two different masses. The, the right-handed neutrino mass will primarily still be really heavy. By really heavy, I mean maybe a trillion times heavier than the proton. So, so when you say different kind of mass, uh, almost everything that that has a mass uh, really gets it through the through the Higgs That's field, right. right? Um, and so, when you say different kind of mass, this is one instance where the mass is independently. That's right. It, without it, it would be a mass independent, independent of the Higgs, and that would only be for the right-handed part. But because the right-handed and right. left-handed part mix. The left-handed part, or the, the, the state that we see today as a neutrino, has some little piece of that right-handed part in it. And its mass hmm. is going to be something like a regular particle mass, and, but actually squared, divided by this very heavy mass. So all of a sudden, you've got a normal mass times a ratio of a normal mass over a really heavy mass, and that makes... The, the neutrino we see to be extremely light, and that's what what we see. The neutrino's masses are all much much lighter than any other particle mass that we we know about. So that's one reason. That's one explanation right. for why neutrino masses are so light. Uh, it's called the seesaw mechanism. If you think about it, you're starting with something normal and something really heavy, and the really heavy thing makes the normal one really light. That's the, it's, it's <laughs> okay. called the seesaw mechanism, and that's sort of the analogy. Now, what is leptogenesis? Yeah. So leptogenesis uh, involves sort of this decay of this very right-handed neutrino. If this very heavy thing was present in the, in the universe, it will decay. Mm. And if it's, de and, and it de it's de actually its mass now violates lepton number. So I said there was, baryon number conservation, there's also lepton number conservation as well. So uh, the lightest <laughs> lepton, which would be then a neutrino, would, would have to be stable as well because there would be no other lepton for it to decay into. Uh, in a grand unified <laughs> theory, the simplest grand unified theory, uh, the difference between baryon and lepton number is conserved, B minus L. So um, the, the total B minus L number of the universe should be zero in, a, in the simplest grand unified theory. Uh, so, so B minus L meaning that the, uh, the, the value right. number minus the letter. Now, uh, okay. the, this heavy mass that I mentioned is, uh, violates lepton number automatically. And, uh, but it doesn't violate any other principle, which, in, and what I mean by it, it doesn't violate any other symmetry, and the ones that we really hold 
uh, sacred are called gauge symmetries, and they're the ones that are, control the fundamental interactions. But this neutrino mass doesn't violate any of those, but it does violate lepton numbers. So now, when this heavy neutrino decays, it can generate a little bit. Okay. Then there are other processes in the electroweak theory that can shuffle lepton number into baryon number. And that's right. what leptogenesis is all about. The leptogenesis is generating the lepton asymmetry through these very heavy neutrino decays. And the lepto, and so now once you have that lepton asymmetry, so long as you do this while the electroweak theory is still a good symmetry, so now we're talking about times before 10 to the minus 10 seconds, some of that lepton asymmetry right. will get converted to a baryon asymmetry, and therefore we end up with a matter asymmetry, a matter over antimatter asymmetry. So that's the basis of the leptogenesis. It's a particular, it's very similar to baryogenesis, but converts a lepton asymmetry into a baryon asymmetry. Okay, so let, let me see if I understand this, uh, Keith. So the, the heavy right-handed neutrinos, which, which, which sort of has a different mechanism for its mass, uh, when it decays, uh, it decays into, uh, into leptons uh, that could then be converted. That's right. Into so the, it decays more into leptons than anti-leptons, say. More into leptons. There's a preference of decaying into into let's say an electron, uh, which is then, uh, or or it could be maybe it has a preference to uh, decay into uh, anti-lepton like a positron or something, and then that could convert it into a into a proton. So no, what, it, what exactly it be, happens? It then? would have a preference of of getting converted into leptons over anti-leptons. So you're right. It would be neutrinos and electrons. Yeah over positrons and anti-neutrinos. It would rather have an excess of, 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 okay. of lepton asymmetry. And that would get pushed into uh, a baryon asymmetry. So again, that would get pushed into, because of other conservation, for example, like B minus L. If B minus L, uh, everything is then, there's a whole system that all this gets done in equilibrium and it all depends on just like a regular chemical reaction, there's all kinds of uh, chemical potentials that you have to worry, but some fraction of that lepton asymmetry gets put into a baryon asymmetry and you end up yeah. with more uh, uh, quarks than you do anti-quarks, and that will lead to more protons than anti-protons. And then as the universe continues to evolve, all that antimatter annihilates and what you're left over, what we're made of is the leftover. Right, right. And so, so again, this is really early in yeah, the universe's evolution. this is all before 10 to the minus 10, before and... the electroweak symmetry gets uh, disturbed. At very high temperatures, um, if I, uh, I don't know if I understand this, uh, Keith, uh, at that temperature, the Higgs field uh, cannot, cannot be more than zero? Um, you mean the value of the Higgs field Oh, yeah, in a sense, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. talking about the period where the electroweak symmetry is not broken, so the average value of the Higgs field would yeah. be zero. Would be zero. So the only thing that could have mass during that time is this heavy right-handed Yeah, in a sense. There are, there are also temperature-dependent masses. So it's, it, the idea of mass is, okay, okay. is really should be... A, uh, you know, a final <laughs> thing that you're asking about the property of a par particle. Um, okay, okay, because you have energy and energy. energy yeah, is and well, you, it, well, they're in. They're not. They're in a thermal bath, and so there are thermal contributions to their masses as well. Um, right, right. So, so if this were true, we have a possible answer to the uh, asymmetry that we see between matter and antimatter. Uh, and so I understand that the, uh, the Fermi lab is um, doing some sort of an experiment of the neutrino to, yeah, to prove I mean, this. Uh, you have to be a little bit careful. Um, uh, okay. Some of that is a little bit press and, you know, 
what they're doing is great stuff. I don't criticize what they're doing, but a little bit of <laughs> spin because yeah. um, the right-handed neutrino, if, if this theory, and the theory makes sense, it's, 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 uh, I'm not sure all your listeners will find it simple, but to us it's, it's, it's actually quite simple. Um, and, but the yeah. right-handed neutrino might be, as I said, extremely heavy. And uh, Fermilab is not going to see the right-handed neutrino. Uh, what Fermilab is doing is really trying to understand, as I mentioned before, there's this breakdown of some symmetries called C and CP. Uh, so they're, they're really looking for yeah. the CP violation in the neutrino sector. We expect that to be there uh, because there's CP violation in the quark sector. That's well-established. Um, and we're trying to well-establish, right. to put it on the same sort of basis, uh, to see the CP violation in the lepton sector as it is in the quark sector. So that's really what Fermilab is doing. Mm -hmm. That may or may not be related to the CP violation in these heavy neutrino decays. That's where I get a little bit mm -hmm. nervous about that direct connection. Uh, but uh, the okay. neutrinos... Uh, the neutrino mixing and the neutrino CP violation is still part of the same big picture. Hmm. Okay, okay. And so, so once we get to a point that we have more quarks than anti-quarks, uh, then uh, the, the nucleosynthesis part of it, there, there, there are some, uh, and essentially getting to lighter elements like hydrogen and helium. Yeah, there so are some there too, just to, right? to get us to that time period, uh, at yeah. ten, I said 10 to the minus 10 seconds, uh, which is only a tenth of a nanosecond, isn't it? It's short, but not that short. That's when the electroweak symmetry breaks down. Then you go, you know, a short time later uh, at about 10 to the minus 5, 10 to the minus 6 seconds. Uh, is when you have the period where now the free quarks are no longer free. They now start combining into mm. uh, uh, neutrons and protons. At, at that time, they'll probably still be making some uh, other particles called pions. They're, they're mesons. They're also thought originally thought to be carriers of the strong force at, at much lower energies. Um, and they were also observed mm. in... Uh, uh, in, the, in in cosmic rays as well, uh, their their decay products and things. Yeah. So uh, that so now you you're at, at at a little bit later time. Now you have neutrons and protons, um, but the universe is still too hot, and so it has well still less than, still a, se less than, than a second, second old. old. And so once we get to about a second and a yeah. little bit later, within the first um, say let's say minute. Uh, or so, then what can start yeah. to happen is that the the neutrons and protons uh, can start combining to make, uh, as I mentioned, the first uh, uh, non-trivial isotope, which would be deuterium, which is the bound state of a neutron and a proton. At higher temperatures, there's there's a whole okay. a whole lot of photons or just radiation light that would break up the deuterium. So you, you could make deuterium earlier, but there's uh, all these high energy photons would smash into the deuterium and break them back up into neutrons and protons. This is the it's deuterium, deuterium uh, nucleus, right? right? Uh, it's heavy hydrogen. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's chemically, it's like hydrogen, but its mass is, is almost about double. Uh, I should say also that the baryonic right. symmetry that we got left over with, the matter asymmetry, is very small, right? We say it's very small because the uh, the number of protons, say, compared to the number of photons, mm. the particles of light, is only about one in 10 to the 10, so one in 10 billion. So there's a lot more light out there than there are. Mm. <laughs> so so that, that slight asymmetry that we saw uh, in, the, in the baryon arena, it is really, really small. So whatever was left is is minute. That's right. Compared it's, to it's very how many small photons are there? Leftover, if you want, and that's. But that leftover was enough to make all the galaxies and clusters of galaxies and stars and everything that we're made of. <laughs> um, so, 
There's right. a lot of photons out there, so you have to actually wait until the universe cools so that the energy in the photons can't break up the deuterium. And once that starts, and as I said, that happens um, when the temperatures are actually similar to what's going on in the center of the sun. It's you know, about a billion degrees or so. Um, uh, the lifetime of the universe now is about a minute. It's within the first uh, couple of minutes. And uh, the first thing yeah. you produce is deuterium. And then you get a series of chain reactions, uh, nuclear reactions that, 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 that uh, go forth. Um, you start making deuterium. You'll make uh, some tritium, which isn't stable. That's, that's uh, even heavier hydrogen. It's got two, two neutrons and a proton. You'll make helium-3 and helium-4. And then you'll make um, uh, some lithium. There's two isotopes that are stable, lithium-6 and 7. And by that, this all takes a little bit of yep. time. And by time you get up to lithium, then um, the universe is always cooling as it's it's expanding. Time is going forward. It's cooling. Now that there's less energy. The density is too small, and the nuclear reactions basically peter out. And that's it. You're done. You 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 you've got. Uh, but you've what you've mainly produced is helium four. Uh, in fact, you've taken about 25% of the mass in matter or baryons and made it into helium-4. Hmm. Well, everything and, else is and hydrogen, hydrogen right? Too, so right? You, you, no? There's a tiny, tiny bit of yeah, lithium. Yeah. It's, that's also now one part in 10 to the 10 yeah. of, of the hydrogen. But uh, and, and deuterium and helium-3 is one part in 100,000. So... Basically, you've got 25% of the mass in helium, and then the other 75% is hydrogen. Yeah, so we, I guess that's why I get confused. So we're still talking about uh, nuclear. We're certainly not talking, not, not talking about atoms. Everything is yet. complete. All the electrons are out there floating around, okay. um, but uh, no, we're, yeah. everything is ionized. So you've got you know bare protons and you know bare helium nuclei there's no no uh no no, no atomic uh states yet and that happens much later right right and and so so as we go forward again um this process continues it expands it cools and then uh electrons come together to um to marry with Right. The hydrogen and the helium. Yeah, and that uh, happens nuclei, about a hundred thousand right? years atoms. later. Yeah, so it's a it's a big and, and again years, the yeah. reason is is that you have to wait until the universe cools so that all those photons don't ionize the atoms. Right? So you have to you have to let the atoms get you have to let the nuclei capture the electrons, but it, if it's too hot, then some photon will come and blast the electron off again. So you have to wait until the, the universe cools, and that's um, very late. Uh, if I can inject a note of history here, um, yeah. The, uh, yeah. the theory of uh, nucleosynthesis or Big Bang nucleosynthesis originated actually in the, in the late 40s um, and by uh, uh, two physicists, Alpha and Herman, they were working with... Uh, uh, the, the senior uh, physicist there was George Gamow, uh, who is thought to be the father of modern-day Big Bang cosmology. Uh, in fact, there was another competing theory, uh, which was called the steady-state uh, theory of the universe, uh, sort of by... Yeah. Um... Uh, no, that's that different. Was Einstein's that, favorite, uh, Einstein's right? was the Einstein static universe. <laughs> uh, that was different. That was the one he didn't want static to universe, be expanding at all. Uh, the steady state universe is expanding. Uh, it's actually more like inflation, but uh, they, okay. they basically wanted the, the universe to always look the same as it does today. It's expanding, but it's always expanding in the same way and, and never really changing. Um, and uh, Fred Hoyle, who was one of the main proponents, he actually named the Big Bang Theory, uh, and he, but he did it to be derogatory. He thought, if I call it something silly, nobody will believe it. Uh, and so he, he named it um, that silly Big Bang theory uh, of, of, of Gamow. But uh, Gamow's student and one of his researchers, Alfred and Herman, 
while working on nucleosynthesis. So they knew that the universe had to be very hot, that it was expanding. They wanted conditions like inside the sun where you can make heavy, actually they were trying to make all the elements. They wanted carbon, they, they wanted the whole table of elements to be made in the early universe and that just didn't work. Um, but they noticed, they said, oh, you know, by the way, with all this radiation in the early universe, uh, that should be left over today. And they actually predicted in 1947 or 48, I think it was 48, uh, that there should be some remnant of this and it would today have a temperature between one degree and five degrees Kelvin. And that was sort of just left, you know, okay, what are you going to do with that, right? And in the 40s, there was no technology to, to discover it. <laughs> but in 1964, right. Penzias and Wilson, uh, working at Bell Laboratories in New Jersey, uh, found that, oh, my gosh, you know, we got some noise in this antenna that we're building. And uh, over in Princeton, uh, mm. Dickie uh, Peebles, Roland Wilkinson said, you, you just discovered the Big Bang. Uh, and this leftover radiation, which we now know is 2.7 degrees to extremely high accuracy, it's 2.7255, right? It's, it's cosmic microwave background so this is radiation, that and it was predicted by Alpha yeah. and Herman yeah. to be between 1 and 5, so they got it right, uh, and that was because they were doing the work on Big Bang nucleosynthesis. Right, right. So, so this is sort of the first light... Uh, when when photos right. so sort of when, get out, uh, so so once speak, you did cool down, that... so now we're, again okay. we're a hundred thousand years uh, past the Big Bang. We already talked about what that meant, but we're uh, and then yes, then light becomes free. So uh, before you had a plasma, all right, you have all these charged particles, charged nuclei, charged electrons. So the, the photons would be bouncing around all the time, but as soon as you make the neutral. Uh, atoms, then these photons all of a sudden are free. They don't see charged particles and they see a bunch of neutral atoms and they stream out and, and they keep going until some of them hit our detectors and that's what we see as the microwave background. And they, they have been traveling a long time. They basically that's right. the universe keeps all cooling. the, so, the uh, now, right? When, when they this. were emitted, uh, yeah. the temperature was about a thousand degrees or so. And the universe keeps expanding. They keep yeah. cooling. And so by the time we get, they get to us today, uh, uh, as I said, it's 100,000 years later. Their temperature is cooled by a factor of about 1,000. And um, we see them as uh, 2.7 degrees today. Mm. Yeah, this seems like a very consistent uh, story, Keith. I wondered, is there anything... Uh, uh, in this in this understanding that gives us any clues about the, the dark, dark well uh, so you it is a very consistent picture you know there is if you want we have now over the last 20 years or so developed what's called the standard model of cosmology we call it lambda cdm uh, cdm yeah. stands for cold dark matter which is what you just mentioned um, and the lambda corresponds to mm. uh, it's called lambda because uh, it's referring to the cosmological constant that mm -hmm. Einstein actually introduced for this Einstein static universe. Yeah. He, uh, he, he, he found that the universe was expanding or contracting, but and he didn't like that. Uh, and uh, he had his own notion of the universe <laughs> at the time, which should be just sitting still. And so he introduced, he said, oh, but I can introduce a constant and I can stop the expansion. And then he actually could have known about um, yeah. Hubble's work at the time. Um, but uh, once he realized, well, the universe is expanding, it was, oh, my God, what did I add that constant for? I, you know, I didn't need that, right? Uh, but uh, <laughs> it seems, though, uh, yeah. from looking at the universe today, everything fits extremely well, uh, unbelievably well almost, if you do have a tiny <laughs> constant. Whether it's exactly constant or it's changing, nobody knows. But it seems to be pretty constant with extremely small value. That value we don't understand. That's, that is a big puzzle as to why this dark energy is, is, uh, has its particular value uh, or if, the, if it's a cosmological constant, why it has that particular value. That's an outstanding uh, problem. Um, and, uh, and that there has to be a lot more matter than is just in protons and neutrons. And that's the dark matter. 
but uh, right. with dark matter and this cosmological constant, it's amazing how much can be explained and primarily through the microwave background, what we see, the details that are seen in the microwave background. Um, there are so many things that get fit by so few parameters. Uh, it's, 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 it's astounding. Uh, but from a, from a particle physics perspective, we still don't that's have certainly true. a good We don't know what matter, it is. Right? There are a lot of ideas. Yeah. Uh, some of the better ideas uh, are not being found. I mean, there were a lot of there was a lot of anticipation with the LHC, which did find the Higgs boson, but did not find anything else so far. And a lot of people thought um, that, that there should be all sorts of new stuff coming out of the LHC, uh, lots of new particles, um, and and some of which could be associated with dark matter. Um, and that's been a big disappointment. Uh, Is there anything to this idea it's, of the primordial it's black possible. holes um, as, uh, as a candidate? I mean, personally, I, I think it's simpler to explain it in terms of a, a new particle um, the, because we understand how you would make yeah. new particles uh, in the early universe after inflation or just thermally, the, all sorts of ways you could do it, but they're, they're very well understood. Uh, now, making black holes, you have to make them the right size. Mm. You, ha you have to understand how they're made. It, it's possible, but it's, I think, much more speculative. And then and how you get the right number. Uh, okay. The nice okay. thing about the, the particle dark matter, at least some of the ideas which, as I say, so far have not come to fruition, is that how much of it gets left over seemed to be very naturally the right amount that would account for the dark matter. But that's still to be proven. It's still to be. Mm. There's a lot of experiments looking for dark matter. Um, you know, sort of direct what we call direct detection experiments. Uh, uh, there's a lot of indirect detection type experiments yeah. looking for products of you know the things that dark matter does. Uh, um, but um, that's still that's an open question. So, so do you think, um, say, look forward, you know, five, ten years, do you think we will have a complete well, I would, picture? I of hope so. I, I, how energy? confident I am, I'm not sure. I, I think our best shot was when the LHC turned on. Um, and when they did not see anything, yeah. and when they went to their second run at higher energy, and they still didn't see anything, um, mm. it, uh, it got a lot of people nervous. Actually, the, the, the value of the Higgs mass that they found, it's, it's 125 yeah. GeV, so about 125 times heavier than the proton. Uh, that was uh, certainly a, a, a viable, it was in the range that was expected. It was within the predicted range for the, for the Higgs mass, but it was on the heavy side. And that meant that it might be hard for them to make all these other particles that were anticipated. So either you need a need a different yeah you might infrastructure need a, a much bigger accelerator and of course then that, that yeah. takes um, money primarily it takes lots of money and I'm not sure that right now <laughs> we have the money and it takes a lot of time yeah so five <laughs> years you know that would be great right. it would be wonderful uh, I, I would not be betting that in five years that dark matter is discovered. I would love it. There was some, there was some talk about Keith, uh, some uh, issue with the Hubble constant. Yeah, there, there is. A, so there are all sorts values, of tensions. Right? You know, not everything. You know, I, I maybe painted an over rosy yeah. picture, um, but uh, there are some tensions. The one mm -hmm. that's getting the most attention right now is. Uh, is the Hubble parameter. So the Hubble parameter tells us how fast the universe is expanding. And from that, you can infer, for example, the age of the universe. Um, and uh, it, depending on how it's measured, whether it's from the microwave background or from looking at distant objects receding from us, you get slightly different values. And uh, so it's measured, mm -hmm. the units are, the, maybe for, for some people, funny units, but it's measured in 
kilometers per megaparsec per second. And so if you put something a certain distance away from us, yeah. it'll tell you how fast it's moving away from us. So from the universal expansion. And the, the numbers are like, mm -hmm. some numbers are around 68, some numbers around 72. And now the question is, what are the error bars? Are they really uh, in trouble with each other? And the estimates for those uncertainties are such that the, you know, the, the people talk about four sigma, which would be unlikely, but not impossible. Um, now, I have to say that, you know, when I was a student, then, then there were a different measurements of the Hubble parameter. Some were 50 plus or minus about five, and others were about 100 plus or minus five. That yeah. was a big problem. And uh, mm -hmm. then somewhat well, later, uh, right. actually, Wendy Friedman, who's now in Chicago, uh, said, well, when I do it, I get about 75. And uh, or between 70 and 75. And <laughs> that number, uh, you know, the people that said 50 and the people that said 100, no way, no way. But it turns out she was more or less on the right track, you know, actually quite a bit on the right track. And um, so to me, this, this, this difference between 68 and 72, it's probably because of my personal history. Uh, just remembering the, the arguments that people were making between 50 and 100, <laughs> between 68 and 72, to me, that, that, those sound like almost, those are almost the same number. That's all. It's that's good all enough. Good. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think, you know, it could also be systematics that people are not, you know, well understanding the uncertainties that they're getting, yeah. uh, that the uncertainties may be a little bit larger or the corrections, there aren't the appropriate corrections being made. Um, but that I think could be sorted out within the next five years. So tensions like that. And of course, you know, discrepancies are supposed to happen, right? Statistically, they should happen. Now you shouldn't have too many four sigma ones, but you know, two sigma should happen and they're totally... you know, five percent of the time. Yeah. And uh, I believe those numbers yes, are from totally yeah, different. One is from the microwave background, which too, is then right? talking about a yeah. period you know, a few hundred thousand years ago, and the other ones are coming from, you know, sort of distant measurements, but, you know, much more like today, you know. And so in conclusion, Keith, um, let me ask you this. So what are you most excited about? Uh, looking well, looking forward, forward uh, resolution to the questions of dark matter, uh, I think are, uh, you know, I'm a little pessimistic that it'll be within five years, but that's the thing that, that can be resolved uh, mm. sort of on, on the close scale horizon. Um, I'd also be most excited if when the LHC is running again, that really we do see some really distinct differences from what we call the standard model, that new particles are discovered. Um, there's still certainly possibilities for that. And that's, uh, that to me would really shake things up and, 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 and be very exciting uh, to me. Um, you know, some of the other questions, uh, well, there, let me add another one, the, and that has to do with uh, the microwave background, um, yeah. and that has to do with the, uh, it, it's seen in the polarization of the microwave background. I said that there were some observables that have proven, you know, that, that are predicted by inflation and have been proven. Uh, one is the flatness of the universe, and the microwave background mm. tells us the universe is is extremely flat, spatially flat, I should say. Uh, the other is tells us something about the anisotropy yeah. spectrum, yeah. how matter is distributed. Uh, and it makes a very, very distinct prediction for how that mm. uh, spectrum should look. Um, and that's also been seen to extremely high precision that this is, fits right in with the predictions, with the initial predictions of, the microwave of, of inflation for the microwave background. Well, it makes another prediction. Some theories of inflation make another prediction that, that can be seen with the polarization of the microwave background. Um, it's, there's two different kinds of perturbation spectra yeah. in the microwave background. One's called tensor, one's called scalar. And the ratio of the two can be observed and is predicted. And that is, with, again, now within the near horizon uh, of, of future experiments, of microwave background experiments. And if they can actually see this uh, this mm. ratio, this polarization predicting that, that's predicted from theories inflation, 
that would be also, I think, really, really phenomenal, and uh, and uh, and also tell us something about what type of uh, inflation actually happened, what model of inflation might be uh, the correct model, and really tell us something about what happened in the very, very early stages of the universe. So that's something that probably more than anything else is uh, is doable uh, in the near future, getting this yeah. polarization. Uh, this signal in the polarization of the microwave back. And those experiments, I guess, are ongoing, right? There's, That's right. There, there are ongoing in, experiments. In, uh, in the uh, South whether Pole or not they'll have the sensitivity in uh, yeah. is not clear, yeah. but all the, the next generation of experiments that are being proposed will have that sensitivity, unless the number is really tiny. I mean, there are predictions which yeah. are saying yeah. it's really right around the corner, uh, very... Uh, in fact, the, the, the original model of inflation, uh, its prediction would tell you that it really is just around the corner about, you know, a factor of 10 or 20 below their current sensitivity. So that's doable. You know, if it's a factor of a million times smaller, that's probably mm. not doable. Mm. But a factor of 10 is certainly uh, achievable. <laughs> right. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Keith. Oh, sure. 